are listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd, a bi-monthly podcast that explores stories inspired by the collections of the Lloyd Library and Museum, located in downtown Cincinnati, Ohio. From waxwings and wrens to orioles and hawks, Most of us have, at one time or another, been moved by the activities and beauty of birds. The Lloyds exhibit, On the Wing, a chapter on birds, highlights that perennial fascination with the avian world in colorful books and illustrations from the library's collections. But birds are in trouble. Recent studies indicate a frightening decline in bird numbers in the United States and around the world. Can bird banding and new tracking technologies enlighten us about the recent decline? Can we do anything to help? We went to Dave Russell to find out. Dave's an ornithologist, master bird bander, and Miami University professor. He's also co-founder of the Avian Research and Education Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to bird conservation and advocacy. Through that organization, Dave operates a bird banding station where he conducts research and provides local college and community members firsthand experience with birds. Welcome to Between the Leaves, Dave. Tell us about bird banding. What is it and why is it done? Yes, I am a federally licensed master bird bander and I am a North American Banding Council certified bander trainer. So I both run a bird banding station at Houston Wood State Park, just north of Oxford, and I train other bird banders. Uh, There's not very many of us on the continent and uh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Bird banding is different than bird censusing in some ways. I can go out and do counts of birds by ear and do breeding bird counts and things like that. But what I'm following is populations. Bird banding can follow individuals. So you can follow an individual through its life history. And frequently it's the individual life history, what happens to individuals that becomes important to the population. So we can monitor populations and we use different methods for that. But when we need to monitor what actually happens, what is the actual number of birds that are hatching that year? What are the actual number of birds that are surviving to the next year? What are the actual numbers of males and females? Now you have to have some uh, marking on the bird that would allow you to separate it from one male cardinal from another. So we need that sort of individual information. And that's where bird banding is so important. And so you can't begin to put together a management strategy until you understand um, the, the life history of that particular bird. So what bird banding does is we inconvenience birds over the course of their morning. Uh, we put up mist nets and a mist net is a 40 foot long, 10 foot tall hair net that is super soft uh, and birds can't see it. We place them in, in routes where they would typically fly between. And so uh, we can then regularly go through and bring the bird back into the banding station where just like if you're at a doctor's office, we take all those measurements of, of age and sex and weight and wing cord and all of the, the measurements of the actual bird to create a file on that bird. And then we put a band on it. A band is a social security number. It's a nine digit, unique number on a very lightweight aluminum band. 
we have bunches of different band sizes uh, because birds have different size legs and it's just like a bracelet. You want it to be loose, but not too loose and tight, but not too tight. And so we, we can then assign a an individual unique band number to each bird and weigh it and let it go. I think a lot of people who don't know anything about banding might wonder if this is ever harmful to the birds. That's a question to ask a lot because you are inconveniencing the bird. The bird was flying along happily one day and then suddenly got caught in the net. Our number one concern is bird safety. And it's not to say that a bird isn't periodically injured. Cooper's hawks, they see a bird caught in a net. They might come in and try and get it. I've lost birds to cats in nets. They've come by and, and killed them in the net. And I spend a huge amount of time training my banders in the proper techniques for safely capturing and extracting, handling and releasing birds. And so it is something that is fundamental to how we do things. And uh, we do everything that we can to limit risk and exposure. Well, what about you? Do you ever get hurt? Actually, bander safety is kind of secondary. It's not really, but um, I get bitten a lot more than I bite the birds. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, um, you know, the birds are fine, but my fingers are sore. And the banding station is nearby, but not right next to the net, right? So you're in constant movement between the mist net and the banding station? Right. So I have uh, some fantastic volunteers, and I've had some for 10 years at the banding station, even longer. And uh, so basically, we have uh, typically 40 nets we'll put out in the morning. So we arrive before dawn, put the nets out, and then constantly circulate, taking birds out of nets, bring them back to the banding station to be processed, and then going out and getting them again. If uh, there's going to be inclement weather, if, uh, if it's raining or too hot or something, we'll close the nets or not band that day. Um, again, we don't want the birds injured or hurt or in any way uh, um, anything other than inconvenienced and, and uh, put some bling on them and, and let them go again. And so the banding itself, while it generates a lot of doctor's office sort of level data, that doesn't help really in the conservation side of things, other than you get a better idea of, of males larger than females. And, um, but what's really important about it is it gives you an idea of uh, age classes of birds. Um, do we have all adults and no offspring, so they're not really producing offspring. Or do we have a ton of offspring, but no adults, you know, so the offspring aren't surviving um, to adulthood. And we can track this year after year after year after year after year and begin to get an idea of where the losses are coming in. So through banding, you hope to find strategies to help birds. But what are some of the challenges? This becomes more complicated when we start looking at migratory species. And we have historically thought that the breeding grounds were the most critical areas for the preservation of species. Um, and the ones that we're particularly interested in at our banding station are the neotropical migrants. And a neotropical migrant is the long distance migrant. These are the warblers, the tanagers, the orioles, the birds that are nesting in uh, North America and, and particularly boreal forests. Uh, and the boreal forest is that the coral reef of the terrestrial habitat in the U.S., where it spans from Alaska all the way to the Atlantic Ocean across Canada. And this is the area of spruce and birch 
Uh, but this is where a, a tremendous number of our neotropical migrants go to nest. However, they spend a couple of months in Canada and then they migrate to Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Argentina. Over 50% of these birds are in serious decline. And um, some of the latest numbers have shown that one in four birds has disappeared entirely off the planet. We've lost 3 billion birds in straight numbers in the last 50 years. We've had a 14% decline in bird totals in the last decade. So we're, our numbers are, are really scarily dropping. And the question becomes, what do we do about it? Well, um, when you're dealing with long distance migrants, uh, we've always thought, well, the breeding grounds, we've got to protect the breeding grounds, and then they'll be able to outproduce their losses. What we have found is that in a lot of species, the boreal forest has been relatively intact. But even with the breeding grounds being largely intact, these bird populations have declined 2 to 3% a year for decades. And uh, there has been substantial fragmentation on the wintering grounds, but even that doesn't seem to have accounted for all the losses that appear to be. Uh, so where a lot of the efforts have been going into are places like Houston Woods, outside Oxford, where we're stopovers, we're rest stops. And, you know, if you're taking a, a trip to Denver, you know, every couple of hundred miles, you stop, you get a Mountain Dew, a payday, you know, you put fuel in the car. But if your car is a diesel and you pull into the Shell station and it doesn't have diesel, it doesn't matter what other amenities are there. You don't have the appropriate fuel. So what's happening to the birds' fuel at the stopover sites and how is it affecting them? So stopover sites are super critical to migrant species. Yeah, this is where they refuel, they rest before they do the next leg of their, their journey. When you look at the impacts of climate change, climate change is doing multiple things. And so that, that's why the management strategies become so, so difficult because these stopover sites now might be in an area that is much wetter than it was previously. So the vegetation is going to change. If the vegetation changes, the food changes. This is actually going to help some species, but it's going to hurt others. And so as we kind of look at bird conservation in the big picture, climate change begins to change the dynamics of where wet areas are, where dry areas are. And the stopover sites are then going to be shifting and changing. And sometimes they're shifting and changing at really a rapid rate. So the birds themselves are barely having time or don't have time to adapt to the new norm. So as you lose stopover sites then, uh, or the stopover sites change, that means that the, the food and the resting space for these guys are no longer sufficient for their needs. And so as plant communities change, that means caterpillars change or berries change. And it, this might not be the appropriate caterpillar, or the appropriate berry for that particular species. And suddenly areas that had historically been super important in their migration route now aren't. And they have to scramble to find someplace else or skip it. If they skip it, then they're going to arrive at the next site in that much worse condition because they haven't had a chance to adequately provision before the next leg of their journey. Can you give us an example of how this is playing out for specific species? Uh, black pole warbler. Black pole warbler is a, a cute little warbler. You sometimes see them in spring when you're out and about. Uh, it nests in the boreal forest from Alaska all the way to Newfoundland. And black pole warblers weigh eh, 10, 12 grams. Um, a quarter weighs 2.6 grams. So it's it's basically 75 cent a dollar worth. And a black pole warbler female will nearly double her body weight 
leave Colombia and head to Canada. When she arrives at her breeding grounds, she is going to have to find a mate. They're going to have to build a nest. She's now going to lay probably five eggs. Those eggs weigh, say for the sake of argument, three grams each. So she's going to lay 15 grams worth of eggs in a week or 10 days, more than her body weight. Then they've got to raise those young and the young have to learn to fly and take care of themselves and then head to Columbia before the snows hit. Now, about 80% of these young passerines die their first year. So it's really tough being a bird. So if you, if you lay five eggs, and that means that 80% of them, four of them are going to die before the next breeding season. So in essence, a pair has to live or a female has to live two years in order to replace her and her mate. And so if, however, she arrives at the breeding grounds underweight because she hasn't had the appropriate fuels on those restover stops going north, and she only lays four eggs, for instance, even the loss of that one egg, it's going to take two years to replace one bird. And most of them don't live more than two or three years. Mm -hmm. So now you're going to have just a steady decline. They're not able to outproduce the losses each year. So the question becomes, what do we do about it? And where are these losses occurring? When we throw in the complexity of, uh, of these migrant species, one of the things that we have to try and determine is, where do we spend that money for conservation? If the breeding grounds aren't, they are being impacted, but they're not being impacted as much. And the wintering grounds um, are being fragmented, but again, not that much. What do we do at the stopover sites? And we have always thought of birds as having um, migrating in wave fronts, kind of like you go to the ocean and a wave kind of from you know right to the left kind of comes in. And so you think of birds hitting the coast of Louisiana um, in Texas in spring and then spreading like a wave up north. Well, we have new banding technologies that are beginning to show us how little we knew about birds and bird migration from before. And one of the things that some of the preliminary data has been showing with these new technologies is that all areas might not be equal in a bird's migration route. Some of these species are tending to congregate or aggregate in specific sites along their migration route. And so there are some sites that have a much greater importance to the overall population than others. It's not a generally everything is equal. Tell us more about the new banding technologies. So there have been movements initially back, oh, probably 10 years ago, where we could put little data transmitters on the birds that measured light intensity. And so you basically, you put these, these little um, transmitters on the bird, on their breeding grounds, for instance, you know, at Houston Woods, put them on, the bird would head to Nicaragua, return, you'd have to recapture the bird and then you could take the backpack off it and then download the information. And it basically used dawn and dusk data length to determine the location of the bird over the course of the previous nine or 10 months. And that began to show us some really interesting data on, and, and things that we'd never anticipated. Um, things like, um, oh, I think it was in uh, 2013, 2014, um, some of the guys at UC Berkeley had uh, put uh, these nano tags on some golden wing warblers, which are really in decline. One of the cool things they found is when they, um, they returned in uh, mid-May uh, to Eastern Tennessee, and that was uh, 2014 is when we had those uh, 
80, 90 tornadoes that went through, killed 20 or 30 people and all that. But when they recaptured the birds, what they found is the birds arrived in, in the early 20s of May and then left. They physically flew back to the Gulf of Mexico over 400 miles away a day or two before the storms came and then returned to their breeding grounds to pick it up on May 1st and 2nd. And we never even envisioned that birds would fly that far to avoid an event like this. And so these nanotags have added a whole new dimension into bird conservation and, and what can they know? And, and, you know, there's been reports of birds leaving areas before earthquakes hit and, and things like that. We can now monitor this. And now there's an even more sophisticated version of the technology called MODIS, right? What is MODIS? Well, MODIS is, um, and that's M-O-T-U-S, um, uh, MODIS is a project now that is just in the last year or two, three, really taking on importance. And what it is doing is basically, again, putting these nanotags on the birds, but each bird, in essence, is tagged with its own radio frequency. And so they're putting up MODIS towers, radio towers, that um, as a marked bird flies over, records the frequency of that individual bird. And so we have them now lining uh, the shores of the Yucatan. They're lining the shores of uh, Texas, Louisiana. There's a picket fence across Pennsylvania and part of Ohio, the Great Lakes. And as we're adding more towers, we're beginning to understand the workings of the migration on kind of a global scale, if you will. So now we're seeing, wow, there are hot spots, if you will, where multiple species are aggregating in very small geographic areas. And so now if you want to look at your conservation dollars, now you can begin to look at, wow, I could really make an impact by preserving this 50 square miles as opposed to spreading it out across hundreds or thousands of square miles. And we're, we're beginning to get kind of the, uh, a better understanding of, of how and where they're going. And now we're combining that with banding stations along these routes where we can actually measure then, and by holding them in the hand, we can determine how many are young birds, how many are males, how many are females, how many young males, and that. And so we can add the baseline um, uh, biology of each individual population to the long distance monitoring that um, some of these uh, nanotags and that are, are, are providing. So bird banding has gone from John James Audubon in the early 1800s, where he tied a thread around Eastern Phoebes and realized it was the same Eastern Phoebes that came back to now we can actually monitor the movements uh, across continents of some of these species and begin to try and tease out what management practices would be best to limit or reverse the substantial declines we've been seeing. Talk a little bit more about the impact of climate change. We don't know how climate change is actually going to impact birds. And how climate change impacts birds is also going to be very dependent upon the kind of bird that we're talking about. So long distance migrants, those birds that are traveling from Canada to Central and South America, these birds migrate associated with uh, day length. So day length doesn't matter what temperatures do, what weather does, what, how the climate changes, the day length isn't changing. Consequently, potential problems for these birds is, is they're getting out of sync with the vegetation, hence the caterpillars and the berries um, along their route. 
the birds that are short distance migrants, which might be more dependent upon actual local weather conditions. Now, in some instances, these birds are going to be favored by warmer further north. There's going to be greater opportunities to colonize new areas. So climate change is going to impact some favorably. It's going to impact some negatively. And as we begin to look, particularly from a land management perspective, how do we balance total diversity and uh, the the other caveat or the other problem in this is just think of uh, of the weather over the last year or two. We've had massive storms. We've had flooding. Well, all of these also impact local bird populations. They impact migrating bird populations. So if we're having more severe storms more regularly, birds that are migrating over the Gulf of Mexico are potentially at risk of getting hit in a catastrophic storm not once in 100 years, but once in five or three or 10 years, which is going to have dramatic impacts on, on their populations. Uh, similarly, the habitat that they're flying into is uh, going to be potentially negative. You know, as the hurricane comes through, it, it, it takes out all the big trees. Well, it's going to take decades for those mature trees to come back, which is then going to impact some species negatively, but it's also going to impact those that like the more successional growth positively. So it becomes a really difficult balancing act from a management perspective on what birds do we favor? Can we favor some? And how do we maintain overall diversity in this climate that is rapidly becoming unpredictable? And this is where management becomes a, it's a moving target. So many challenges. Where do you find hope in this situation? Where I have hope is is there are a lot of collaborations that are happening now between government and industry and and academia. And the citizen science movement, I think, is what really has, um, I I think that's where our, our true hope arrives. We can't pay for the studies we need to have done. But things like eBird and iNaturalist and that, that allow people that are interested in the outdoors to actually participate in a meaningful way in collecting data um, has really impacted our ability to begin to make these decisions on management and, and things like that. And, and so I think that's that's the only way we're gonna we're to survive this in the future is is to have you know everybody who's interested kind of joining the effort. What are some other things that people can do to help protect bird populations? When you plant your landscaping, use native plants. There are gorgeous native plants, and those native plants produce caterpillars and berries and flowers and and things that are appropriate for the native species that are part of the fabric of how things work. So rather than going out and, and finding something from you know Eastern Albania to, to line your driveway with, find something local. And if everybody had even a patch of local plants in their yard, think about it from a Google Earth perspective. If you think of all the yards and each one had a, a 10 by 10 patch, the amount of additional native plants, food that would be available to our birds. Um, the other things from a bird perspective is, People don't understand. Cats kill more birds than anything else we can possibly do. We're in the billions of birds a year that cats kill. And I have a cat. I love cats. I have nothing against cats. My cat stays indoors. The other thing is, is join a group of like-minded people and help. I don't care what that group is. If, If you're too busy 
to go out and help pull honeysuckle at the, at the local park, then donate a few dollars so that they can hire workers to go do it. But, you know, join a cause that you think is important and that you feel attached to and join them and help in, in whatever fashion is appropriate for you and your lifestyle. And the combination of those things would make a huge difference. I know a lot of our audience is part of the citizen science movement and is really interested in doing what they can to help slow this decline. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Dave. We hope you'll join us again sometime to let us know how your work is progressing. Our guest today has been ornithologist and master birdbander Dave Russell. Thanks for listening to Between the Leaves at the Lloyd a bi-monthly podcast of the Lloyd Library and Museum in Cincinnati, Ohio. Produced by Meg Hanrahan. Audio editing and mixing by Michael Ronstadt. Want to learn more about the Lloyd and its collections? You can visit online anytime at lloydlibrary.org.